Father, we're with such an abundance of your word, whether through media, on our computers, uh, in our homes, uh, everywhere. Uh, Father, we're just grateful that you have uh, given us a picture of yourself, a picture of your desires, your commands. We, we ask that this morning we would be good listeners but better doers of your word. I ask that you'd plant your word deep into our hearts, give us clear understanding uh, of your desires, of who you are, and cause us to be spurred on uh, in our relationship with you and with others and towards people in this world. We need you, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Pastor Brian, he is um, uh, back in Texas, as he mentioned last week. And if you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hands. We've got people bringing free Bibles for you if you need one. We, uh, he's visiting Texas, uh, and there's some nice places in Texas, despite what you might think. Um, we have missionaries that are there that, are vis- uh, that are, uh, we support from this fellowship. And so he's visiting those places, encouraging them. And also his daughter's there too, and so he's visiting her. So he'll be back on Tuesday and looking forward to that. And uh, so this morning, as as Pastor Brian finished up Acts 15 last week, we're going to be looking at the first part of Acts 16. So if you want to turn to that while I'm giving a basic uh, overview. And and the main theme in these passages really speak about um, the guidance of God, the leading of God, God directing us. And so that's where we're going to uh, look at, uh, look at some questions about that. We're going to dive into that. But before we do, we'll kind of do an overview, read, read the passage, and then we'll uh, dig back in uh, and cover this theme. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, let's look at the first slide, which is Acts 16, 1 through 5. And it says that Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. But Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, quick overview. Lystra and Derbe were roughly 35 miles apart. That's roughly between here and Santa Maria. And uh, this journey that Paul and Silas now with him are going is roughly about five years from Paul's first journey through this area that he had with Barnabas. And you can read this in Acts 14, and we went over that a number of months ago. So if you want a context, you can read that. But Paul wanted to see what God had done uh, in the churches, what God's work had been doing, and encourage the churches. But it's really interesting to note, because if you read Acts 14, Paul in Lystra was actually stoned and left for dead outside the city, and God raised him up. So think about this going back into this area where he'd been stoned and having the courage to follow Jesus to do this again. That's pretty remarkable to me. I think we need to take note of that. 
So uh, as we read here um, about Timothy, Timothy had become a follower of Jesus. He'd come to Jesus being his Messiah because he was a Jewish boy through his mother. And he'd come to know, uh, become a follower of Jesus through Eunice's mom and Paul. And later in the Bible, when you read First and Second Timothy, those are letters from Paul to Timothy. And at that time, Timothy had grown up as a man and was actually a leader over several churches in the area around Ephesus. Now, uh, it's interesting that it notes here that Timothy was well-known in the area between Lystra and Derbe. Now, think about uh, you know, knowing someone so well because of their works, their love of God, their love of others, to be known from here to Santa Maria. That's, that's, that's the storyline behind there. What a, what a remarkable young man that Timothy was. And his, his trust in God and his love for God and love for others were well known. And so, um, as we go through this passage, it talks about Paul wanting to circumcise Timothy, but we'll cut back to that later and look at that. All right. Got more laughs on that one at the first service, so you guys might have missed that one. Okay, anyway. That's what's called a cheesy dad joke for those of you, or a cheesy grandpa joke, because I am a grandfather, so allow me that privilege. So Paul is wanting to go through the cities and uh, present to them what the council of elders had gone through. Kind of lost that slide, didn't we? Okay, that's okay. Thank you. And we're going to deliver the, the decisions that had been reached in Acts 15. Now, if you were here for that, there was a huge tumult about circumcision, but also following the law of Moses for this influx of Gentiles coming into faith in the Messiah that the Jews were receiving in coming to Jesus. And so it was a huge thing, a huge argument, and culturally was very, very tumultuous. But... In understanding what God wanted to do with the Gentiles, there were arguments, there were you know, railings, there was thoughtful questions, and as they worked this through, they finally came to a place of realizing, look, this is how it's going to look, I'm falling forward, and I'll let you read Acts 15 to see what they said. And so Paul and Silas and now Timothy are going to go through these churches, uh, delivering this decision and helping Gentiles come into the faith. Um, let's go to the next slide. And so, um, when they were going through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, understanding Asia is not like we're thinking of Asia in our minds. Uh, Historically, it's called Asia Minor, but is now uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. But the Spirit, Holy Spirit, forbade him to go preach there. Now, again, that's something we're going to look at, too, But that's just shocking in some ways to us. And so, um, when they had come up to Musia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so, passing by Musia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach there. And then let's go to the next slide. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and from the following day to Neapolis. 
and from there to Philippi, which was the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained there a number of days. Now, Philippi um, was a very large city, probably the most, one of the most prominent uh, cities in that region. It was a Roman colony. Actually, uh, in the Roman wars, uh, great victories were won in that area, and so retired Roman soldiers used Philippi as a retirement place to go. So it was a very prosperous city, had a lot of commerce, and very influential in the outlying areas, and Paul knew this. Paul, you know, he knew that they were supposed to go in there, and so in his mind's eye knew, ah, Philippi is the place we ought to go to because it's a very influential city. So, now with this oversight, let's go back and dig in to the main theme of these passages, and we'll relook at some of these passages. So, and we'll also see how that applies to our lives in God's leading and guiding. In, let's go to the next slide. In this idea of being led, directed, guided, shepherded, there's different words in the, in the Bible that, that all indicate the same thing, where, where God directs his people. And so we're just going to look at two sides of this first, and one being um, the objective direct leading of God in our lives. What does that entail? What are some things that are a part of that? And so the first thing would be the clear commands that are for all believers at all times, the scriptures. And so that's a very clear direct that not only applied to Paul and his, and his friends then, but it also applies to us now. For instance, when we, when we look at the command of God in his word to forgive one another, well, that applied to then, but it also applies to now because the Lord does, you know, the main message of the good news is reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another. And so the outline of God's love and forgiveness is that, that he says, forgive one another even as I have forgiven you. And so that's a very direct command to us that allows us to say, wow, you've loved me, and so I'm going to release that person from that. Or the command to not defraud one another. That's a very important one that comes up in the scriptures, that we play fair with one another, and we, we take care of one another, and we don't defraud any of our brethren at all. And so, just as it was true for them, it's true for us today. And so, by doing that, we see another aspect as we go through Scripture, and that's the clear revelation of his nature, his heart, and his mind towards all creation. And so, as we read, and we, and we study, and we look, we begin to see the personality of God in all his multifaceted appearances. His, 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 his fatherhood, his shepherding, his um, God of judgment. We see all these things and we begin to begin to understand what his mind and his heart are. And we begin to be changed by the reading of that into that same image as God interacts with us. And so it, it allows us to begin a trusting relationship that grows and grows as we know more about his heart and mind and his revelation of himself as well as we read what he asks us to do. Now, all of that comes down to that third part of this, of the objective will of God and the direction in our lives, is that we respond in obedience that comes out of trust and love for him to that clear direction. And as we you know, do the clear commands and we grow into his nature and we respond to who he is, then we will begin to have a greater understanding of his personal leading 
in our lives. Conversely, if we tend to ignore the clear commands and the clear revelation of himself, the outcome of that is that we're not going to hear as well that personal direction. So, um, since this passage uh, that we're going to read next is, and the passages we're reading in here in Acts is about God's desire to reach people for himself, and that is through Paul that's bringing this message that we're reading about, let's read a passage right now that would be true, that would you know, show an objective command that would be for Paul and for us. And this is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this is just before the resur- you know, after the resurrection, Jesus is about to go back into heaven, go back to the Father, and he's got his disciples around him. Now this could be the, the 11, it could be you know, 70, it could be 100, we really don't know. But Jesus wants to give an important word to them. And part of that is that he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Paul would have known this word. And he, and he would have had a general consensus that as he first came to Christ, that this would be part of that general command. And this is the same for us, is that this is how it works. It's called relational authority, is that as the Father has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth, thus he bestows that onto you and I and gives us the right to go and make disciples of all men and women, of all nations. And he doesn't leave us alone to that, but he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you see this process of saying, oh, wow, okay, here's a general command to all of us in this room, and this is the way he's done it, and he's granted us authority, and we get to go with him to go do this. That's a general objective term that we can understand and that Paul understood. But now let's examine the second aspect of leading and guiding, which is subjective. And let's look at that, and let's look at a couple of um, aspects of that, which is important to us. First of all, when we talk about subjective leading, it's for personal understanding of what God's asking you to do, or me to do, or where to go, and how that might look. So in subjective leading, one of the things that's really important to understand is that it will always be aligned with the clear will of God. In other words, it will not contradict what God has already revealed very clearly in his word. For instance, one of the things that I often come up against over the number of years in pastoring is that um, men and women have come and said, well, I, I believe that God's leading us to live together because we love each other. Now, that's a real common thing, you know, not only uh, in the world, but also in, in the church. And yet God has said in his word that concerning having sex before marriage is something that he really says, no, I want you to have the commitment and the covenant of marriage to one another that's lifelong, where you are committing yourself as a man to this woman only, and that you as a woman are giving yourself to this man for the rest of your life. And in that place of covenant of marriage, being able to share that sexual union is part of God's plan. And it's part of trusting that. 
So we see when there's a contradiction, and this can be in any area, that you'll know that a particular leading and guiding, if it is in contradiction to something that's already been revealed clearly, or God's heart and mind, we need to question that. We need to go back and say, gee, am I relying on my feelings, on my intellect? Am I relying on bad information here? So that's really number one in subjective leading. Number two is that it rarely gives a complete picture or process. Now, uh, this is really hard. <laughs> because when you think about this, we usually like to have the whole answer in front of us. We like to have complete, clear direction. For instance, when you want to know where to go, you, you know where, how to get there, you'll download it on Google Maps and you've got it all in your phone or on your iPad and there you go, right? It doesn't work that way in subjective leading of Jesus, our shepherd. It's really a process of ongoing revelation, ongoing leading that allows us to follow. Kind of like uh, Hansel and Gretel. Um, uh, maybe that's too old of an analogy. Maybe you didn't grow up with Hansel and Gretel. You probably know what I'm talking about. They followed the breadcrumbs, but instead of going to the witch's house and being killed, we're actually following a wonderful savior and a good father that leads us into a good home. So anyway, there we go. I digress. Anyway, so being able to be comfortable with that process and trusting is some of the things we'll look at. Another thing that's a part of this is that often it can challenge our own perceived understanding. Does that make sense? Think about that. When you were young, how many of, well, when I was young, I thought I figured out everything about God's word and how that worked in walking in relationship with him. I have since learned by hardness and testing that that, I don't know even a little teeny part of what that might look like. In fact, my understanding about God's personality and how that looks and how he leads me is usually always challenging my understanding of the situation. And we have to be ready and be able to do that. And fourthly, that it will cost you something to follow. When we think of that scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to have any want. He leads me beside still waters and green grass and he restores my soul. Ah, well, that's the Jesus I want to follow. But we see in the scriptures, men and women being followed, that yes, you can have joy and peace and a place of safety, but there's also times of sorrow and pain and suffering that are a part of that picture too. And so we need to know that no matter where he does direct us and lead us, whether objectively or subjectively, it's going to cost us something. And so how this works out for Paul personally, about getting subjective leading. I want to look at the ninth chapter of Acts. Now, the ninth chapter of Acts, if you were here for that, is Paul's conversion. He was a Pharisee. He was a devout Jew. He was an absolute radical Jew that considered the faith of Jesus to be a heresy and thus wanted to stamp it out because it was a threat to being a Jew. And so in that process, dragged people into prison, killed people, and in Acts 9 was on his way to Damascus to arrest more people. And along the way, 
all of a sudden, Jesus comes and meets him as his Messiah. Blinding light, throws him down off his donkey onto his rear end, blinds him, and as Paul is laying there absolutely helpless, he hears this voice and saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer is, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, I want you to get up, and I want you to go into Damascus, and I'm going to send someone who's going to tell you what you're to do. And so at that point, he's absolutely helpless and blind and goes into Damascus, while at the same time, over here in Damascus, Jesus comes to another disciple who's in Damascus and says, I want you to go talk to this guy named Paul and tell him all the things I'm going to do. And the disciple says, no way I'm going to go do that. (laughs) Because this guy, Paul, he's taking people into prison and killing them. You think I'm going to go do that? Jesus tells him, no, you go and tell him. And so here's this passage here where what he's going to tell this disciple to go tell Paul is this. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he is to suffer. See, Paul was doing what he thought what God wanted. But when the resurrected Jesus comes to him and tells him what he's going to do, that absolutely challenges all his understanding of how he understood the scriptures, how he understood God, and absolutely turned it upside down to where he met the living God in Jesus and became a different man. Now, we see the subjective leading that challenges and kind of encapsulates all those things that I just read about subjective leading. But let's look at this passage, okay? In Acts, it challenges us about subjective leading. Paul wanted Timothy, again in 16.3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Look, it's already been defined in Acts 15 that circumcision was not necessary to come into the kingdom of God, not for salvation. In fact, later uh, in the writings of, of the Bible, we see that Titus, who was another one of his converts, who was a son in the faith, he basically refused that Titus would be circumcised. So why, right now, would he want to circumcise Timothy? That comes down to subjective leading. And I want to look at this next passage. Paul's heart was that he had been touched by God in such a unique and distinctive way is that now he understands this calling on his life, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 9. 9, 19, and 20. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So the conclusion is, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in the blessings. Everyone in that region who was a Jew knew that Timothy was a man of faith, but that he was also uncircumcised. And you go, well, wait a minute. 
I don't know anybody in this room. I don't know whether they are or not. I mean, think about that, guys. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Seems rather odd that that would be something that was well known. Different culture, different circumstances. But here you go. They knew his dad was a Greek, so his dad was probably well known. His dad was probably not even a believer in faith in God. And so I don't want my son circumcised. And that became well known because, because in, under Jewish law, if your mom was a Jew, then you were considered a Jew. So this was well known, and they were going to go through the churches. So in love, to be able to convey the message of the gospel, to not have a hindrance, he asks Timothy to do this. And thus the message of the gospel for love's sake is accomplished. That's subjective leading. Because you can't find that in, in the scriptures of that time where that would become something that was objective. Totally subjective leading. That's important. So, in the fact of objective and subjective leading, I want to look at some questions that are a part of this process that are certain on your mind, but come up in this area being directed by God individually. And so I want to look at some of these questions. And they're where, when, with whom, will we trust, and wider viewpoint. Why do I do all W's? Well, it's easier to remember that afterwards, and you can start thinking about it yourself. So anyway, that's one of those tricks you just do. So anyway. So let's look at where. And let's start there. We've all been created for a reason and a purpose. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this, that you have an individual call and direction that the Lord wants to send you. And if you're in this room and a disciple of Jesus, God has chosen you and has a calling on your life that is no more and no less than anyone else. Now, it may look different, obviously, than we're looking at Paul here, that's very unique and very powerful, but the calling and the desire of God for your life and where to lead you is just as powerful and just as important to his heart, and he wants you to know that. You are not an accident. Maybe some of you in this room considered your birth an accident, but you are no accident. God made you for himself and for a purpose, and the Lord will fulfill that in your life as you yield to him. Because he is powerful. He can hold the universe in his hands, and yet he holds your heart in his hands. And he has desires to direct you and to lead you. So that's really important that we grab a hold of us. And because scripture tells us that we're bought with such a great price, we belong to him and are called to follow and partner with him, which is really, really important because it's for his pleasure, but it's not like a slavery. It's a partnership that you get to be partners with this living God, with this shepherd, Jesus. And that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. So let's look at Paul and see how he was personally directed. Let's look at the next slide. And we see this confusion of wanting Paul knowing the general call, first of all, of Jesus' words, and then that personal call on his life to be someone that goes to the Gentiles and to the Jews and is going to suffer. So he has this general call, the objective truth. He has a subjective truth of knowing his particular calling. But as they're going through this region here in this passage, they're going through the region and they want to go up into 
the area of Turkey, the Asia Minor. And it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to do that. Well, doesn't it make sense if I'm called, it doesn't matter where I go? Yes, it does. It matters to God where you go. And we'll look at that a little bit. And so they, they go to another city and they're thinking, okay, now this is the, where we're going to go back up there. And again, the Spirit of Jesus says, no, don't go there. So to a man like Paul, Paul was an A-type personality. Very, very direct, made plans, moved on, and maybe you're like that. So here's Paul. I'm probably thinking there's some level of confusion. <laughs> Wait a minute, you've called me to do this. I know that, but why are you telling me no? So they end up at Troas, and they're just waiting, literally hanging, you know, making time, hanging around. And at night, Paul wakes up, and there's this vision of a Macedonian man. Now, how did Paul know that? Well, he was a very well-learned scholarly man, and so he probably heard the dialect of this man speaking, and he recognized it was a Macedonian man. And he sees this man pleading for Paul to come and help him. So he relays this to his companions, and immediately, well, I think we can conclude that God's leading us to go into Macedonia. Now, did he have the complete picture? Did it make sense being stopped? No. You see how it's challenging the understanding, and there's not the whole picture. And, but they know, okay, the next place to go is Macedonia. And they go. Pretty interesting. So as we see this subjected area, we start have to ask the same questions. What's your where? What questions are you asking? It's going to look different for each one of us. If you know the Lord Jesus is your shepherd, then you'll know his voice and follow, and he'll let you know where that where is. Because Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and they follow. So he promises. So, in that place of the where, where are you supposed to go to school? Where are you supposed to find a job? Where are you going to do that in? You see, we all have personal wares. But if you trust and allow Jesus to be your shepherd, he knows where your where is, and he'll lead you to where you're supposed to go. Now, I, I know that sounds simplistic, but really it's there in the passages here. And it's a part of trust within that process. Following very closely on the heels of that is the next one, which is when. How many times as a kid, when you were three or four or five years old, when you were with your mom or dad, and it was a long trip, what was the first question you asked? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Now, your parent or your parents obviously understand the concept of a couple of hours. Not so to a three, four, five-year-old, right? So what was the answer you would hear from your parent? What was that? Yeah, right. That's what my daughter said earlier for service because she knew that's exactly what we'd say. Because you can't explain the when in concepts that can be understood. So in many ways, being children of God, there's a lot of things that the intellect and the knowledge of God that he's not going to explain the whens to us. Does that make sense? For instance, let me give an example. 
many of you ask the question, when are we going to get married? When am I going to get married? Is that a valid question? Yeah, sure it is. Is God interested in that? Yes, he is. But the where's and the when's can become idols that consume us because at a, and it's hard to understand when the when's and the where's become an idol, but when it consumes you and all you can do is think about and ask about and you're not satisfied until is when it becomes an idol. And it doesn't matter. It could be a job you're seeking after. It, you know, when am I going to get out of debt? When, you know, think of all your whens and wheres and begin to understand, is it consuming it because you're concerned about your own needs? Or have we really submitted under his leadership because of his call on us that he's able to tell us the whens and the wheres and will lead us? Let's look at some scriptures that have to do with that. There's a scripture out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1, and he says this, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. God knows the time that's perfect for you. He's a faithful shepherd that will guide and lead you as to the winds and the wares. And he holds the timing of that. Because we look at the scripture here with Paul in Acts here, and He's probably asking, well, when do I get to go? Well, we see further on in the book of Acts that he has a third journey that goes through there and plants churches. So we see the when later. But Paul was willing to yield to that. Can we yield to the fact that he holds your time in his hand as to the when? And the second verse is there out of uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. And he says, we humans keep brainstorming options and plans, but God's purpose prevails. See, the Lord has given each one of us a measure of intellect, some more, some less, and giftings and and natural talents. And all of those are a part of the process of going places and doing things. But when you've made your plans and you've thought out the thoughts and it's good to do those things, the last thing that we need to do is to be able to lay them at his feet and go, You're my shepherd. You're my Lord. You tell me the wins and the wheres. You have the time. Is this something that is a part of you? And it is a very subjective area. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to answer a lot of your questions this morning. I'm simply giving you a framework of of how to be able to begin to put it in a context that will be easier for you to understand and hear and see how God is leading you personally. Does that make sense? Is that resonating? Okay. So, as we just talked about, and I'm not going to, um, you know, let's go to the next verse, which I talked about here in, in Acts. Oh, yeah, that's right, the when. Okay, let me, let me point this out for Paul. Paul's when looked like this. Paul had the general calling. He had the personal calling. But when did he go? Acts 13, 1 through 4 and I'm not going to read it. You guys can look at it because just for time's sake. But basically, they're all together as a group, and out of that comes a prophecy for Paul and Barnabas to be separated, to be sent out. And so that was Paul's win, and he heard that. Now, your win can come through sometimes circumstances. It can come in different ways. It can come from a dream. It can come from a vision. It can come in very many ways. The key thing for us is to be able to learn how to be patient and wait. Not easy. Our society tells us 
I want it when I want it, and I can get it. It's instantaneous. We have information at our hands immediately from, from the media. We've got instant food. We've got instant this. We get what we want and go where we want when we want that. That's different culturally from most of the world. And it's sometimes really against God, how God moves in us. So I think it's really crucial that we challenge ourselves and at least look at that. Okay. So the next part of this is with whom? With whom does God lead me with? What does that look like? What does that mean? What am I trying to say here? Because God's leading will always involve us with others in the community of faith. That's really crucial to understand. God's leading for you is not in a void. It's not just for you. It's not for you as an island. It is for us as a community. And with whom is always a valid question to be asking. With whom are you leading me to do what you're asking me to do? And that's really, really important. Because we need to learn how to have solid relationships that are trusting and rich and full for us. And that's really important that we push through the hindrances that come with relationships. Because you all belong to one another, and I need to look at some scriptures that, that talk about that. So let's look at the couple of scriptures. And first of all, the whom can be, you know, in one important crucial area that I feel is necessary is from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, where, where the writer of this proverb says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. I can just tell you as a young man who thought he knew it all, I wish I had been more thoughtful about passages like that and had gone and talked to men and women who had already gone along the path where I was going and asked counsel, what does this look like? How does this go? What did you learn? How might this look? Because God's desire and leading comes through good counsel. And I would recommend to you that if you, you know, you're thinking about a way of going and, and where that might look like and, and maybe God's leading you, that you would get together with someone who has gone that way before or at least someone that you trust that is thoughtful, loves God, and that can give you counsel that is a part of that process of learning what he's saying and where to go and how that might look. That's really crucial. I, I tell you, if I had done that as a young man, I wouldn't have stepped on so many landmines and blown my legs off metaphorically, of course, but it sure hurt. It sure was problematic. It sure cost me years of not fully fulfilling all that he wanted for me. I can tell you that. And it caused great pain and sorrow in my relationship and my marriage because of that. So I can only say to you, uh, you know, to, to some of you that are young, please think about this. Make that a part of that. And again, another process of, of a scripture from Ephesians 4.16, which I put up there, where it says, from whom, meaning Christ is the head of the body, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. I just want to say to you, whoever you, can, you consider as a friend, a confidant, someone with you, you need each other. You are interconnected with Jesus Christ being the head and you being part of the body, that you are interconnected and that you need each other. The Spirit of God is supplied to you through others as well as your own time with Him. And once you get past the fact that 
you know, it's not, it's not just about you. It is about him and that he has this plan. It's fulfilled with someone who's linked and directed with you. And it's just very natural. In fact, when you look at the passage here, uh, here in Acts, let's go to the next slide if we can. We see Paul and Silas coming there. They talk to Timothy and ask him to come along. And so all of them as a team are going together and strengthening the churches. In fact, at some point here that Paul finally figures out it's to go to Macedonia, you notice that last passage there in, in verse 11 of Acts 16. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. Why is that we important there? Because at this point, Luke, who's writing this account, has been talking about they because he wasn't with them. But Luke, being a doctor, a very skilled physician, was really necessary on this trip with Paul and Silas and Timothy because Timothy suffered from stomach ailments. Paul suffered from some unknown physical malady. We don't know what it was. And Luke was essential to help keeping them healthy as well as being a great fellow servant with them. But had they gone into Asia, they wouldn't have met Luke at that time. So you see how this works? I, I know it sounds, you know, when you're looking at these scriptures, it's hard, kind of hard to pick that out. But this is the interlocking, that mystery of how this works, both in the natural and in the supernatural. And it can have a framework that can help, help keep us safe, but also hear better and know better what God is saying to us as individuals. So, Another deeper aspect of this is the next slide I want to look at is the question of, will we trust? Now, it's hard enough sometimes in our, in our walk with God that when we have the objective truth of his word, that we trust God to obey it sometimes, or to trust that he's a loving father, or that he's a good shepherd. We read about that. We read about others seeing this happen to their lives, and so we have a level of trust to follow after that and, 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 and join in with him on that, right? But it's even harder when you're getting this area of subjective guidance and leading is trusting that. And again, I, I, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm simply giving you a framework here. But this is still truth, and it's important that we learn to grow up in love and grow up in trust in this. So the question is, will we trust? And leading, you know, in the fact that we're leading with others, it's, it's integrated into that. Because, honestly, you're made to trust. We are, you are made to trust. That's part of you being a created being. You trust in something or someone. To say that we don't is really a fallacy. Because think about your activities when you fly on a jet or you go somewhere, or you, you, you meet someone whom you love and you want to marry them. You don't know the first thing about that person. You don't even know what they're like half the time. Or when you get on a plane to go fly, do you know what the pilot did the night before? Were you there when the inspector checked for microfractures in the, in the frame? Did he fall asleep? You, you don't know. You understand drag and lift and thrust, those coefficients, you know, all that to go with that. No. Well, maybe some of you do if you're a pilot. But the point is, you get on the plane and you fly. Why? Even though you don't fully understand, you realize there's a, there's a track record of safety. But you don't fully understand. So you're implying some level of trust in every action and relationship that you have. That's important. But how does it apply here with this passage? 
Let's look. Because we're built to trust in someone or something, the scripture gives us two opposite ends of what that looks like in a negative way. First is Psalm 136, where he says, don't put your confidence in powerful people where there is no help for you there. Because when they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have made the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Some of you in this room have probably thrown all in in trusting someone, and maybe they failed you, and you know how that felt. You felt foolish, you felt angry, you felt hurt. This is God's basically warning to us to help us understand. You think of a powerful person in government. You think a powerful person in the business realm that you've known. Maybe someone in the media with, with money and influence. Someone that you've recognized as greater than yourself and, you, and, you, and, you, and it's too easy to cross that line because there is some level of trust in any relationship, but then there's that place where it crosses over to where our trust in God becomes secondary to a trust in someone else. And that's where we have to be concerned and thinking about that. Now, let's say you're, not, you're, you're, you're a self-made person. You've been raised. My, how I was raised was my dad being the strict disciplinarian that he is and being you know, a man who went through a lot of hardship taught me you only have to take care of yourself. No one's going to take care of you. One of his favorite things he'd say to me is, God helps those who help themselves. Well, first of all, the scripture says God helps those who have no helper, but that aside, I didn't know that back then. So it was in myself. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so I hate to admit that I need someone else. I hate to be weak. It, it just I fight against that all the time because of how I was raised. And yet, look at this passage here in Proverbs 28. No, back, thanks. Proverbs 28, 26. Those who trust in themselves are fools. Ooh. There, that's pretty direct. That's not really being nicely said, nicely said. But there it is. But those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. It's hard to accept sometimes your finite weaknesses. It's hard to understand when you're coming to the end of yourself. It's hard to come up against that. But that is so that God may have this place in our lives as being our trust and our hope. Now, he'll accomplish that different ways. But it's important that you ask the question, who am I trusting? Where am I trusting? How is that looking? How does that line up with how we read in his word and in this example here? That's really important. Because let's look at this next passage here in this passage we're looking here in Acts. And again, I'm going to read this. There was a disciple there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and Paul wanted Timothy to go along, so he took him and circumcised him. Now, this is for you guys. Circumcision, right? If you were Timothy, and here's Paul, a man you respect, a man you know, a man who led you to this Messiah Jesus, but to go with him, he's saying you're going to have to get circumcised. Come on, guys. You know, what fears, what questions would you begin again? Oh, wait a minute. This is going to cost me a lot more than I thought it was going to cost me. 
oh man, oh, gosh, I'm a young man, this is going to lay me up. Um, you know, do you know what you're doing in this? Couldn't we just go up the road to someone who's professional, like Supercuts, you know? Let's, <laughs> let's, you know, let's, let's really, you know, wrestle with this. What is Paul, Paul is, yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but honestly, you've got to think of behind the scriptures. Luke doesn't tell us, but he's being challenged to trust in a way that is absolutely at the very core of his being, very painful on one side physically, but also emotionally. Gosh, can I trust his leadership in love to care for saints? But, you know, this wrestling that had to go on, there had to be a trust first in the Lord that Timothy grew in, but there also had to be some level of trust with whom he was with. Can you see this process? That's how it is in our lives. It may not be as dramatic, guys. I trust you. I don't think you're going to be called to do that on your next missionary trip or if you go with one of us. So you're safe. We won't ask you to do that. But understand something. Trust is costly. And following the subjective leading of God, the shepherd Jesus is going to have some measure of price that we pay. But it's so worth it. Finally, our last question, and we'll end here. Good, I'm pretty much on time here. This is a crucial question. Do you have a wider viewpoint? What does it mean to have a wider viewpoint? Well, let's go back to that last passage here that we read out of Acts again. Yep, right there. It's good. Acts 16, 11, 12. This is the end of this passage. They're setting sail from Troas. They're going to Samothrace, and they end up in Philippi, right? Does any of you know, because they started in Antioch, remember? Does any of you know how many miles that is between Antioch and Philippi you know, on a long voyage? I wouldn't expect you to. 785 miles. That's roughly between here and mid-state Washington, mostly on foot or on a donkey. Now imagine yourselves taking that trip. How many days would that take? How much would that cost you? Hot days in the desert there, cold nights, hungry, thirsty, bandits on the road. This is something Paul talks about later on, by the way, in Corinthians when he's defending his apostleship. But just think, why would he do this? He had a wider viewpoint. He saw things from a different vantage point. Because really, when you think about it, even the best job, the best marriage, the best school that you go to, the best place to live, and I consider this one of the best places to live, if it's just about ourselves and it's by our own you know, coming and getting it, at some point, the best job, the best marriage, the best school, the best place to live becomes stale. And you need something more. Without a wider viewpoint and a wider calling on your life, which we've talked about, we have to find something and someone beyond ourselves to rely on and to follow. Because how many of you have gotten exactly what you dreamed for and hoped for? And like, if I can just get, and then you fill in the blank, after a while, has it become just... As, did, it become, did it start souring? Did it become stale? Did it become a, a labor? 
I can just tell you it's hard enough in this world to do what we do and to carry out our responsibilities. But when we have someone and something that's bigger than ourselves, and again, going back to the call in your life that God has for you, when he's in control of that, and when you have a vision for what he's asking you to do and where to go and when to and how that's going to look, it spurs you on, it keeps you in the game. Even if the job is a dead-end job for the moment, and you know you're better than that, and you can move on. Can you stay in the journey that's now? You see, Paul wanted to go places, but there was still that 785-mile journey to get where he went, and it took time. Can you enjoy the journey where he's taking you now and yield to the fact that he's got more things planned? Can you live in the present with an expectation for the future that God has called you to. Because, look guys, since we're talking about the call of God, and let's go to the next passage here real quick. Yep, 2 Peter 1.10 says this, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. There's no one on this planet that's going to do that except you and me. That's your responsibility. That's your call. But it's not in a void. It's with the framework of what we've just talked about with others and with the living God coming that you make this call and election sure for your life and you get envisioned so that as you're following and leading, it's always going to be fresh because you've got the living God. Because look at the very Son of God. Look at Jesus. Humbled himself, was directed by the Father, obeyed in trust and love. He trusted God, and yet he was mocked by many that he trusted God when it looked like a failure at the cross. By all reason and intention, that death on the cross was shameful and was the end of the story. The disciples believed that. And maybe you, in following God, you've come to the end and it looks absolutely like it was a failure. Just like Jesus. But that's not true. That's not true. Because look, he finished what the Father asked him to do. Remember at the cross when his last words was, it is finished. I've crossed the line. I've done everything that the Father God asked me to do as a man. And he died. But then he rose from death and is now honored at God's right hand. And one day, all heaven and earth will be under him. And he has all authority in heaven and earth. Because he obeyed. Because he followed. He finished the race. He finished it. Each one of you has that same quality because the spirit of Jesus lives in you for those that know him. And he's simply saying, trust, follow. I'll lead you. And you can... At the end of the day, you can say, I finished it. I finished what was asked me to do. But it will keep you fresh, just like the Son of God, just like Jesus, because he lives in you. So uh, let's stand. Let's have the band come up. Now, there's a lot in here. Obviously, the questions, the, you know, there's probably you have a thousand more questions. 
the purpose of today wasn't to answer those questions completely because there's only one who can. But this is helpful to provide a framework, a place to walk in that will help make it easier and more knowledgeable about objective leading and subjective guiding. But the challenge that faces you and I is that will, again, will I trust? I need viewpoint. God, come and meet me. So this morning, as we're going to do this, we're going to sing. We have some communion there on the sides, in the back there, and also up front. When we take communion, what we're saying is, I'm partaking of your body and your blood because of this love you have for me and because how you've sacrificed and how you restore and heal my soul. And so we reaffirm our devotion to him. We're going to have some people up here up front and on the side to pray for you. In fact, uh, those that are leading, like Tristan, maybe to be on the side praying, and some of you others, Chun Han, maybe a couple of the girls can come up and just be up here to pray. You know, whatever your needs are, if something has touched you this morning um, that really grabbed you and you want prayer for that, get that. But as we're standing here right now, I, I can at least just say, recommit yourself to the process. Redevote yourself back to him by relinquishing the understanding, the desires, all of those. Put it back down at his feet and say, I'm yours. So let me pray for you, and as best you can, whatever that looks like to recommit, lift your hands or just stand there and receive. Father, we're yours. You bought and paid for us by your precious blood of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, with all our questions, with all our hopes and dreams, with, with all our thoughts of failure, with all the things that we are concerned about, we want to relinquish to you. We want to give you ourselves. We want to say that we are yours. Would you just come and put your seal on us? Put your seal on those in this room. Would you reignite the call, the direction, the preciousness that each one has here, would you reaffirm that to everyone in this room? And would you reignite with a viewpoint of you and your calling on their lives? In Jesus' name.